Catherine May is a mother, nature lover, writing teacher, and a New York Times bestselling author. She's also been knocked down. Like many of us, we go through unexpected experiences within our lives that either teach us resilience or teach us that sometimes life just doesn't go as planned. Join us on this episode of Reconsidering as we speak with Catherine about our new book, Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times. We talk about work addiction, illness, guilt, and how sometimes you're in a period of wintering where, for better or worse, you transform and come out the other side to a life you may not have anticipated. We'll talk about Catherine's personal experience with wintering and how her story resonated with so many of us right now as we balance work, life, family, and a pandemic. After this quick break, join Aaron, Bob, and me, Meredith Black, to chat with Catherine on Reconsidering. Over the past very difficult year, many people have asked themselves, how can I use my skills and my talents to help out and have a meaningful impact? U.S. Digital Response is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that connects volunteer technologists with governments to help meet the critical needs of the public. Already, more than 7,000 people have raised their hands to volunteer their time and their skills. And they've helped more than 200 communities in 36 states and territories across the U.S. address some of the challenges related to elections, unemployment benefits, food security, COVID vaccinations, and so much more. There is work to be done and impact to be made. Sound interesting? Sign up to volunteer and learn more at usdigitalresponse.org. That's usdigitalresponse.org. Hi, I'm Catherine May. I am an author of several books. I write fiction and nonfiction, and I live by the sea and love swimming and being outdoors. So Catherine, we usually start off with some lightning round questions. Here we go. Paper or plastic? Paper. Morning or night? Night. Book or e-reader? Book every time. Nice. Steve Jobs or Walt Disney? <laughs> wow. Probably Steve Jobs, if I'm honest. Uh-huh. Yeah. Lady Di or Princess Margaret? <laughs> I am not a fan of the royal family. Neither <laughs> abolish them. Got it. Got it. Queen Victoria or Queen Elizabeth II? Ooh, I want Elizabeth I, but I'll go for Victoria. <laughs> okay. Reading or writing? Writing. Library or coffee shop? Library. Mansion or apartment? Ooh, mansion. More space. Less Uh people. Hotel or Airbnb? Airbnb. Backpack or suitcase? Backpack. Scripted or improv? Improv. Dictionary or encyclopedia? Encyclopedia. Magna Carta or U.S. Constitution? Oh, Magna Carta. I've got to say that, surely. (laughs) Shakespeare or Einstein? Shakespeare. Lennon or McCartney? Mm, McCartney. Jane Austen or Mary Shelley? Mary Shelley. Picasso or Michelangelo? Picasso. Loved or feared? Oh, loved. Poetry or prose? Ooh, uh, prose. That was it. That was hard. (laughs) Some surprising answers in there for me, actually. (laughs) 
I'm a funny mix. I think people expect me to be a very nature focused writer, mm-hmm. but I'm also a digital native and I've always lived in towns rather than in the deep countryside. And for me, it's actually about a balance of loads of things that I'm interested in. I'm I'm really not that enamoured of this current movement to say nature is good and civilization is bad. I don't think that's true when we sit down to really think about it. And so, yeah, I'm I'm all about refinding a pathway through what we have now, because I've benefited from it hugely, without a doubt. With the concept of wintering, I'm wondering if you feel like that's become so much more challenging in the digital environment. You know, th- mm. like it's, it's so much harder to disconnect. It's, it's so hard to get away just from artificial light, you know, and sort yeah. of reconnect to those steady rhythms of nature that I think our bodies and spirits kind of crave. I'm wondering if you, yeah, what you think, if, if you think the digital revolution and other things about urban life and even town-based life, which is quite modern, you know, if you feel that that's really consistent with the human character, the human spirit, the human species in a way. Yeah, I mean, I I think we're still integrating the massive change that the digital age has brought to us. And I mean, without a doubt, that's affecting us in all kinds of negative ways. We know that, you know, we know it's affecting our sleep. We know that we are incredibly ill-disciplined around it and that it puts us into patterns of thought that replicate addiction and that we find it really hard to switch off. It also takes us into this environment of coming into contact with more people and more views than we ever have been able to before. And that is a very, very particular experience of this age. And we don't know how to deal with it yet. We haven't found the right way to really cope with that 360 degree knowledge that we're invited into now. It's scary. And it's leading loads of us into really dangerous places of, you know, conspiracy theory and being incredibly mean to each other. We've got some work to do to get out of that. On the other hand, I am somebody who is not incredibly sociable. I'm autistic. I found my community online and I found a way to understand myself that I could never have had in any other age. And I don't think we can talk about one without the other. Like at the moment, we're in this pattern of talking about how bad it all is, but then being online all the time and using all those tools and, you know, making all those efficiencies that we can make with those digital, you know, machines that we carry around. And I think we've got to start to think about both, you know, like the good and the bad together and how we ameliorate the bad bit and how we lean into the good bits. It's just not helpful to keep saying, this is terrible, I love it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) On that note, how do you kind of approach this as a mother of a nine-year-old? It's really hard because, I mean, in many ways, he understands it better than I do. You know, he has Mm -hmm. this real attraction towards online culture And this sense that it's completely elemental to him. I do try and assert boundaries for him all the time. But we also try and talk about the effect it has on him and to try and observe when it tips over and when it's bad. You know, so we've noticed lately, and he's noticed this before I did in a way, that when he's on his tablet in the morning, it makes the mornings much more difficult to cope with and that actually if he does some drawing in the morning when he gets up or even just watches normal TV, 
it doesn't make it quite so hard for him to get dressed and ship out to school. Absolutely. And now he can take part in those observations and he's really sensitive to them. But I think opening up the conversation with them rather than pushing hard boundaries onto them that they can't make sense of is a much better way to go about it. I've noticed this with my own kids. So, so my kids are both young adults now. They're uh, 21 and 23. Right. And of course, I was working at Apple when the iPhone came out. So we had all those devices in the house as they were coming yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. And it was hard for us. To, I mean, I didn't even conceptualize about setting boundaries or anything. They were what we were doing at the office. So of course, we all played with them at home. And yeah. watching my kids evolve, kind of co-evolve with the technology and social media and video games and everything else. Watch them co-evolve with that through junior high and high school and now college. It is interesting that they're starting to self-regulate. I think that's a little bit what you're talking about when you are trying to get Bert is your son's name, is that right? Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. When you're trying to help Bert understand the impact of these things himself, it feels like you're trying to get him to self-regulate. Yeah, no, absolutely. To some degree, and it feels like you know, there's this other thread in your book that nature, you know, just the seasonal change, used to be this thing that nature kind of forced upon us to self-regulate. And it does feel like maybe the digital revolution is forcing us all to learn how to take over that self-regulation where, again, sort of like nature or maybe community pressures or there's other things operating on us all the time. And now we're having to generate those boundaries for ourselves. I don't think we have a great record of doing that. If you look <laughs> at alcohol and the food supply, um, yeah. we don't, don't seem to be great at self-regulation. Do you know what, though? I think self-regulation is a really current concern. And I think we're going to see a lot more books and media about it in the next few years. Because actually, when you look at millennials, they are much better at self-regulating than people of my generation who are a little bit older. You know, they think really hard about alcohol consumption in a way that my generation really didn't at their age, you know. And they are much more likely to not drink. You know, they are much more likely to have sex later and they're much less likely to get pregnant young for example you know and actually I have so noticed with my son that his self-regulation around his tablet is actually better than mine like he quite often pulls me up on how addicted I can get to certain games or to certain apps and how often I'm reaching for my phone and you know he says to me well you tell me off for watching YouTube videos for hours on end, but you are constantly reaching for your phone and I can put my tablet down. And he's absolutely right. You know, <laughs> He's like, he has 100% got me there. I think that there's a new generation thinking really hard about self-regulation and the pandemic has forced them into that as well because that's been a massive consideration when you have hours of time stretching ahead of you. How do you use that time how do you master your emotions during that time? I mean, how do you stay sane? Like, that's been a question for all of us. Mm -hmm. Which I think, you know, leads me to wanting to talk about your book. And I'd love to talk about this idea, you know, and I especially think it's just so relevant now, about the idea of wintering. What is it and how do we recognize it? Mm. So wintering is something that comes to us normally. It's something in involuntary, but it's this time when we're pulled from mainstream life. And that can come for loads of different reasons. I mean, I, we're really familiar with thinking about the pandemic pulling us from mainstream life. But to go back before those days, if we can possibly imagine them, you know, that could be from a mental or physical illness, from big life events like divorce, separation, from 
just changes, you know, like I think, you know, we're increasingly seeing accounts from women going through the menopause, thinking about that as a time when that shift is happening and they withdraw for a while while they reformulate themselves. And I think there are periods in childhood that we've never acknowledged, but which now we're beginning to, where we draw back a bit before we go back out again. And it's this pause, but also it is a time when we are suffering. It's a painful time. It's unpleasant. It's uncomfortable. It's a remaking of the self. And, you know, like I am never interested in going, but it's great, guys, because it's really good for you. <laughs> like I, I've got no interest in toxic positivity. But I do think that when we emerge from our winter and we do come out wiser, and we do come out better able to serve the world because actually we've added another increment to our humanity during that period of suffering. But that doesn't make it any fun in the actuality of that moment. <laughs> That's, it's always the cheery message that I have, like, yep, you're going to suffer at some point in your life. It's inevitable. But you look back on those moments, right? You look back on those moments and you can appreciate them too, right? Like I think it's like some of the best things that have happened in, I mean, at least my life have been through tough periods that you look back and reflect and realize, wow, I got out of this or I came through this or I solved this. Now what's next? You know, and you can kind of feel like you can kind of move forward and accomplish more. Yeah, I mean, even the most horrible experiences that we go through, you know, losing loved ones, mm -hmm. serious illness, quite often when you talk to people about that 10 years later, they'll start to say, but the thing is that if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't have understood this about myself. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have felt the urgency of making the best use of my life. I wouldn't have been able to move on. You know, like it's that classic fairy tale narrative, isn't it? That yeah. the parent dies at the beginning of the story, which lets the child come into their full power and their full potential. And so those really vile times in our life inform everything about us and teach us everything we need to know about being human. There's a sort of a collective wintering that's happening right now, or it, it feels like it, that normally the things you're describing happen on a personal level. It's a personal loss. But it's so strange to go through an extended period of time where we all feel like this cloud, this sadness. And it's almost hard to articulate for me sometimes where, you know, just waking up and feeling like, I feel awful and I don't really know why. Can you talk to us about how, you know, these ideas of wintering that you've been exploring in your research and your personal reflections and your book, how does it shine a light on what we're all going through right now with this pandemic and social upheaval and so many other things happening? Well, I think it's really important to think about understanding your wintering in two different phases, and they're very, very separate. That point when we look back on them, we can see the whole narrative arc of them. And we can make sense of them. And that's one very distinct moment. But the moment we're all in together and separately at the moment is very different to that because we can't see it at the moment. You know, like we can't draw any conclusions yet. We haven't processed the trauma of this yet because we haven't had a chance. And we haven't processed the learning of it yet because we haven't really been able to get together. And, you know, many of us have still got some of the dips yet to come. You know, there are still people getting very, very sick and people losing their lives and people losing their livelihoods. And I think we at the moment are on the cusp of massive social change that's going to emerge from 
this extended winter. But we can't understand it yet. So for me, the bit of the wintering that I talk about in the book is actually that granular level of living through the wintering and how you survive it by breaking your life down into moments, into real fragments of time, which is just about all you can process in that moment. You know, like you can't think about big picture. This is the kind of Lego bricks of survival when we're just thinking, okay, how do I get through this next moment? I might be in pain. I might be incredibly distressed. I might feel incredibly lost. What can I do in a 10 minute chunk of time to get through that rather than how do I then replan my whole existence? Like that will come, but it's about walking through it. And for me, the secret there is to sink into your kind of pleasure and your desire as much as you possibly can, but also to be with your pain and distress rather than to keep avoiding it. You know, that does not work to keep flinching away from it because you just prolong the distress. Like that becomes the distress actually. And if we can learn to feel and acknowledge sadness in a very pure way, it's actually an incredibly beautiful emotion. It's not pleasant. It's not jolly. It's not the kind of thing you bring with you to a party and everyone loves you. But it is absolutely informative and insightful and very, very necessary. That's the process I'm kind of advocating for in wintering. Catherine, can you dig in a little bit more to that idea of sinking into your pleasure? Because one thing that's really interesting about this collective wintering that's happening with humanity right now is, I think for many, like there's an awakening of there were these mythologies that we've created for our lives of what was really important, how we were going to spend our time and energy, and then the pandemic hit and it hit us all in different ways. Some people literally lost family members and some people just have been shut up indoors and sad and everything in between there. But those mythologies and those value systems have been challenged and in some cases just shattered. Talk to us about that sinking into your pleasure and how that can bring us through. Yeah, I mean, it's been like a showcase of all the different ways that life can go wrong over the last couple of years, I think. It's been so visible to all of us. And I think often in the face of suffering, and particularly mass suffering, we feel really guilty about enjoying anything at all. You know, like we often feel like we've got to pull ourselves away from laughter or from pleasure or from satisfaction or from relaxation. And that is not how we survive this. Like if we do not let ourselves grip onto the wonderful bits of life that still remain, and there's always something then actually we make it much harder for us to keep going. This is a kind of relay race. Like we all have our time when we can't do anything, when we can't cope with anything. And if you frittered away your neutral time by refusing to let yourself have any joy at all, then you come into those really difficult moments much less able to cope because you haven't let yourself restore So, you know, I talk a lot about the small pleasures, you know, cooking a meal that you really enjoy, stepping outside for a few minutes and just sniffing the air early in the morning, you know, noticing the stars at night, all of those tiny things. Not everyone has a garden, but I have a very beautiful alleyway near me where someone's planted a big packet of wildflower seeds. And during the first lockdown, they all grew up from April onward, this incredible 
efflorescence of wonderful flowers. And I thought, what a fantastic thing to happen right at this moment in history when we can't do anything but even in the darkest alleyway, there are all these beautiful things for us to notice. And one of the things that happens when you start noticing is you notice change, like flowers are constantly moving through cycles. And it's only when we really deliberately engage our attention in that, that we begin to get this sense of time passing. And that takes us back to self-regulation, right? Because we can't self-regulate if we are not engaging with how time is moving on and how that's paced and how that's feeling and what is happening during that time. And so by dipping into the natural world, it offers us this brilliant way to self-regulate and to really begin to change the metronome of our seasons and to begin to feel that sense of movement and change, even when life feels like it's slowed down unbearably. I want to go back to something you said about guilt a few minutes Mm. ago. And when I was reading your book, there was something that really resonated with me, which was there was this moment where you were out on a walk. Your coworker texts you to see how you're doing, and you immediately feel guilty for being outside, not at home, bedridden, right? While your coworker's covering for you, who's like, you know, making up for things. And it's as if you had to explain exactly what you were doing, or you felt like you did, when you really don't. And, you know, you're talking about going outside, enjoying nature and, you know, actually recognizing that time is happening and shifting. But like, how do you decondition yourself from having those feelings of guilt when healing and rest and, you know, recognizing that the world is still moving is completely normal? Yeah. Uh, We've got so far away from recognizing that though, haven't we? I mean, we're really... We've taken ourselves into a place where we are happy now to talk about illness, which let's face it, for years we were very uncomfortable with. Mm -hmm. But we can't talk about recuperation yet. And, you know, dial back 100 years, like recuperation was a big deal. We really acknowledged it. We honoured it as a time. You know, we saw it as necessary. We've somehow tried to erase that. And that means we never quite recover from anything properly. We just bounce back into the next crisis. I wish I had a simple answer for you to say, right, this is what we've got to do. But I think this is a moment that we're going to be forced into big societal change on the very aspect of recovery, because this illness is leaving loads of people with long term symptoms that just won't go away and we can't wish them away. And it's going to suddenly now have a very real economic effect. And that, unfortunately, is the only thing that seems to make us change. But we need to start coaching ourselves very slowly and very gently into really taking proper rest when we need it. And that means cutting back on commitments. It means being honest with each other about what we want and what we need. It means honestly giving ourselves an actual break. And, you know, as we've already talked about, like not bouncing onto Twitter to, you know, try and write a killer feed about how we're resting and not trying to do a million things in that hiatus we're having, but literally learning to slow right down until we are doing nothing. And that's not going to come immediately, but it's time for us to practice absolute nothingness 
just for short periods of time, because that's when we're actually resting. It's really challenging, isn't it? It is. Even as I say it, I feel the challenge of that expression of like being nothing, doing nothing. One of my habits that I try and foster is when somebody asks how I am, what I'm up to, I'm beginning to try to resist saying, oh, I'm really busy. Like, sometimes I'm not, you know. (laughs) It's like you really don't need an excuse, but we're just kind of conditioned to say we have an excuse when really you can just say, no, I'm not interested or no, I'm not going to go do this. You know, it's such a big thing for us because being busy in our culture and, you know, US and UK are very similar in this, Mm -hmm. is seen as equivalent to being important. That's right. And that's also equivalent to being worthwhile as a human being on a basic level. And we need to break those equivalences because we are not consistently productive throughout our lives and we were never supposed to be. And we've invented this idea that we have to be constantly outputting that's useless to us. If we keep doing that, all we're doing is emptying ourselves out until we get sick. And it's so, so toxic and so, so challenging for us to change our minds on it, which is why it's important. (laughs) I have a little thrilled giggle every time I talk about it. I I find it really exciting, the idea of being a bit useless sometimes. (laughs) Well, it's an interesting framing, you know, because just in the last couple of sentences, you talked about being productive and then being useless and like that whole framing of my value as a human being, you know, my right to be on this planet and take up space and participate in life is dependent on my output or something. I mean, this is not a problem that my dog seems to wrestle with. No, your dog doesn't care. Your dog is fine. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. My dog is much wiser than I am. There's no doubt about that. You know, your book kind of picks up where, you know, you've already kind of had this crash out of work, if you will, (laughs) you know, and I feel like we've sort of collectively had this big crash out of the pace that we were on societally. Like COVID was Mother Nature's way of saying, hey, everybody just chill out a little bit, man. Like, you know, like everybody yeah. take a nap. Like this is out of control. And, you know, again, your book kind of picks up after you've moved away from work. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your experience of how did you get that wound up at work? Because I think <laughs> a lot of people get sucked into that. Yeah. I'm sure you've had some time to reflect on that ramp into that moment that sort of broke you, if you will. How did you get in that situation? What's really interesting about it is I already knew better. Like I'd already been through a cycle of going into, you know, a busy full-time job and thinking, whoa, this is crazy. This is not for me (laughs) and backing out of it. And I'd been freelance for years before I went into that job. I think what was instrumental in driving me back towards that kind of work was that I had had a period of time after I've had my son when I'd struggled to really be very economically productive. And I felt ashamed of that. I felt really humiliated And I took this job because I wanted to feel useful again to the world. Like it wasn't just feeling useful to myself. I wanted to prove externally that I was useful and that I was valid and I wanted to be visible again and all of those things. And very quickly, I started to feel those symptoms of total stress, you know, like feeling exhausted, feeling completely burnt out, like unable to think straight feeling stressed and grumpy and all of those things, you know, upset tummies, all of that kind of thing. And I carefully ignored them because I had to keep on working. 
and it kept going on and on and there was never enough work that I could do to fulfill everything and then I started to feel humiliated like why am I not good enough to be able to do all that's being demanded of me nothing was ever good enough nothing would ever have been good enough because I was working in a toxic culture and in the background there was bullying going on there was lots of poor mental health among my colleagues who were you know falling like flies and instead of me thinking at that point okay I need to exit this really quickly I thought oh I need to rescue these people (laughs) I'm going to be the one that saves everyone but like behind all of it is that desire for safety and that's financial and that's not just about uh, you know financial safety in that space and time but it's also about the future you know and how few of us have saved for good pensions these days and how vulnerable we feel if everything falls apart we can't solve that as individuals like that's something that's beyond our control that the world has got a lot harder to stay afloat in but I had to completely drop out before I could start to try and reform my life around how I needed to live that was safe for me and wasn't going to kill me. And I do think we can all make changes, but we do have to stop buying into this culture that says that we have to throw our whole souls at work in order to to be doing it right. Like we've all got to get together and challenge that because it's not healthy at all. What's sort of ironic about your story, Catherine, is that in taking this break and kind of hitting the reset button, and in the book you talk about your fear and you know self-consciousness about being able to write a book like this and mm. whether or not you're going to be able to do it. And yeah. you press pause and you know you brought your productivity down and ironically you produce something that really resonates. I was just saying behind the scenes to Meredith and Bob is like what you're describing. I just can't nod my head enough because uh, <laughs> uh, I identify with all of this. And would that have been possible if you were still immersed in that work to prove your value type of culture? So curious how you feel now and and <laughs> what hitting the reset button has done for you. Yeah, I mean, you know, there is no way I could have written Wintering while I was still immersed in that culture because I couldn't have possibly made space to think about anything clearly. In a lot of ways, I think that's how that culture operates. Like it deliberately gets in the way of your sensible, wise, basic reflection. And, you know, it certainly constantly tells you to suppress your gut instinct because our guts are telling us very early on that this stuff is wrong and we push on through it. And so, no, I mean, I I had to do that. But, you know, I have to say that was very financially risky and it was painful you know I've just paid off a load of debts that I incurred by backing out (laughs) of that working culture and I've been lucky enough to be able to do it you know I've thought about this a lot because not everyone gets to write a best-selling book about it you know it's not it's not great advice to tell everyone to do exactly the same as me but what we can do I think realistically is start to replan our careers and give ourselves a three or five year cycle to reorient ourselves. You know, if if we recognize stuff's going wrong, we can start to think about how we can make that change. You know, and like I know lots of people at the moment who are retraining to be counselors and psychotherapists, for example, because that seems like the next wise step for them and it lets them be in control of their working pattern, but it also lets them do that helping that we've all got this huge urge to do. 
And that takes a little bit of time, but at least gives you hope that you can move on. But I'm hearing about lots of people cutting down their working hours at the moment and finding ways to make economies while they just back off a little bit from that sheer intensity. And I think that's really interesting too. I didn't have that option because I was just done, you know. <laughs> but I think if we can catch this early enough and if we can begin to really understand this better and to honour it and to value that the instinct away from this incredible hardship that we're putting ourselves through, then I think that's a, an interesting moment when we can make change before everything goes badly wrong. You know, I feel like you're starting to hint at this distinction between busyness and productivity. Mm. And again, it feels like producing a book seems like a really productive thing to do. But having studied many fiction authors in particular, they don't seem like particularly busy people. <laughs> oh my God, you're on to us. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm wondering... Yeah, it goes back to what you were talking about with self-regulation. You know, it's like this thing's so bad for me, but I love it. There's something addicting about being busy. And there's something, I don't know, almost strangely unsatisfying about being productive. <laughs> That's so interesting. Yeah, when you were writing the book, did you feel that you were productive when you were actually in the act of writing? I mean... Oh, no, I never do. I mean, write, I don't know why I write, because it gives me this incredible self-loathing. I was writing about this on Twitter today, actually, and I was saying that creativity is an act of desire and like desire it's never quite fulfilled you know it's always slightly unrequited you know like when you're feeling this passion for a person you can never get enough of them and when you have a creative passion you never feel like you're good enough you never feel like you fully realize this perfect vision that's in your head you never feel like you give it enough time you know <laughs> what you're saying about the difference between busy and productive is exactly on the spot because busy gives you these lovely short-term goals that you can tick off and we've all been encouraged to have to-do lists and we go tick 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 and feel really satisfied like we're infant school children whereas productivity like being truly productive and having that kind of sense of burgeoning within you where you're doing your life's work is massively frustrating and unsatisfying and it's about walking this path of eternal practice and you know change and incremental growth and going backwards and all of those things but it obviously it's the work that ultimately we'll look back over and feel grateful we did and it's a massive mental discipline and again it takes a huge change of how we see ourselves and how we see a span of a life in order to really honour and value that work that we really, really want and need to do. It's very different. Catherine, in the book, there's a sentence that really stuck with me. You said, doing a resilient thing made us more resilient. <laughs> I feel that's a very timely sentence, especially, you know, to bring us back to what we've been going through the past year with the pandemic and such. But the idea of building resilience, part of wintering is resting, but it's also building your immunities, building your stores, building that resilience to make it through difficult times. Hmm. Talk to us about the idea of intentionally doing difficult things. You also used the phrase forced crisis when you talked about yeah. your polar bear <laughs> swimming in like this freezing frigid water. Yeah. Talk to us about becoming more resilient. 
I think resilience is something that we talk about a lot in terms of being desirable. And we talk about it a lot in children, don't we? That we want our children to be resilient. And yet we find it very hard to put ourselves in contact with those moments where we have to enact resilience. And it is a cycle. It doesn't just arrive resilience. We have to suffer a little bit. You know, it's a bit like that idea that when you're building strength in exercise, your muscle tears a tiny bit and rebuilds. And that's how we get stronger. And I think, you know, you can build resilience the hard way, which is by reaching absolute crisis and having to survive. And some people don't make it through that point. We don't like to think about that, but that's the truth. Or we can deliberately put ourselves slightly in the way of discomfort in order to feel resilient. And that was the huge insight I've got and I continue to get from cold water swimming. You know, I still couple of years on have that moment of like bodily resistance to getting in freezing cold water it doesn't go away but I now know that once I've got in I will have tucked my levels of resilience just for a little while and I'd have shown myself that I can endure something that is difficult and challenging but also really thrilling and takes me to the edge of what I think I can deal with but we have to practice resilience very deliberately and in a way that's like safe and relatively friendly, but also which challenges us. And, you know, like, again, I don't think we are that keen on doing that in our everyday life right now. Can we talk about unhappiness for a second? Mm. You write in your book, unhappiness has a function. It tells us something is going wrong. Yeah. And, you know, I think of the example of when you ask somebody how they're doing, nine out of 10 times, they're like, oh, I'm great. Oh, I'm doing, I'm doing good. Like everyone just says the polite thing, right? They don't want to say anything that's going to burden others or make others feel guilty for even asking them. How do you embrace the emotion of unhappiness versus ignoring it because society expects you to be happy or give positive responses when sometimes it's just not the reality of the situation? Yeah, I mean, in order to do that, we first have to be able to notice when we're unhappy. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's a work in itself, actually, to start to really notice our feelings and to stay with them for a little while as we experience them. And I think that has to come slowly. I learned to do it when I picked up meditation. Like I learned to meditate well, more than 10 years ago now. And you know, in the first few weeks of that, it was so unpleasant. I couldn't quite believe how terrible it was to sit with being me for a while. <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd come to it from a, after a period of severe anxiety that had meant that I'd had to move out of a house and all sorts of things like that. And so I was really, at a, you know, a very low point. But meditation made me sit with the purity of those feelings. And it didn't give me immediate analytical understanding. Like that's a different process. I think quite often we expect to like take a brief look at our sadness and understand what the hell it's all about. And we don't have that direct access. You know, <laughs> being human is not that simple. Yeah. But what it does do is it just tells us where we are right now. And there's something very calming about knowing you're sad in a pure, simple way in this moment. And it's a perfectly legitimate way to feel. And when we know we're sad, 
we can start to do something about it. But we can also make it safe to just be sad, even if it's just for a few moments before we start to distract ourselves again. It is safe to be sad. What's not safe is to keep running away from being sad. Like that fear of sadness is not safe for us. It's not healthy and it's not endurable. It's constant flight. And that feels like being hunted. Being with sadness is actually you know, the first time you do it, you feel this sense of calm wash over you because it's just truthful. It's honest. It's just a very pure state of being. I think, again, it's practice. You have to approach it slowly, but it's something we can do. It's something that's within our capacity and something we can acknowledge in others. Like it is not dangerous to be with someone else's sadness. And not to try and solve it or to ameliorate it or to talk it away. Like we can say to a friend, you're really sad at the moment. This is horrible. And that is the most meaningful thing we can do in that moment, I think. There's kind of a theme in a lot of your comments about the importance of slowing down and listening to your own inner voice. Mm. You talked about that a little bit with how you got so wound up at work. I'm looking at a highlight from your book that I made. The quote was, but then stress is a shameful thing, a proclamation of my inability to cope. Yeah. You know, it seems like meditation is maybe a way that you've found to listen to your inner voice more. I mean, do you think it's possible to exist in the sped up modern world and still be in touch with your true inner needs? Or do we have to find ways, maybe not of extreme wintering, but do we have to find ways of being able to put down our tablet before we go to school in the morning, you know, so that we can, <laughs> like, is there a path forward with self-regulation that doesn't lead to wintering by crisis, if you will? I think there is. I think it's very rare. But actually, you know, I'm getting better at it. I'm learning to practice it better. And I'm learning to see the signs early and to actually act on them rather than to try and ignore them. And that does change everything. You know, it doesn't stop bad things from happening in your life, but it does mean that you can pace yourself as they come towards you and that you can begin to make preparations. I do think it's possible to live in this modern world and be mindful, but that isn't by living in the pattern we're living in right now. You know, I think the people who are really surviving and who are really thriving are people who are pushing back against at least some of the demands that are made on us. And we can't keep unquestioningly absorbing so much stuff and so many obligations and so many demands into our life. We have to start spitting some of them back out again. And we have to start choosing what bits are important. You know, like we've talked for years about can women have it all I don't think women comes into it anymore I think this idea of having it all we've become absorbed in this idea of having everything all at once and we can't we just can't do that and we're forced to make priorities and that means saying no to some things (laughs) and you know Once you start doing that, life becomes an awful lot easier. Once you start saying, okay, I can't go to, you know, five yoga classes a week and have a burgeoning social life and catch every single film at the cinema and work full time 
and be a good mother and be a good daughter and be a good wife you know, and be incredibly stylish and always have my legs perfectly waxed and always have the perfect <laughs> haircut like I cannot sustain all of those things in one life there is not enough time and space so what is important what is your genuine human priority where does your gut take you and what things is it time to step away from if you could, I want you to try to imagine 25-year-old Catherine. Mm. Just like really try to bring her into your mind. I want you to imagine that the Catherine of today meets 25-year-old Catherine and engages in a bit of perhaps reverse mentoring. <laughs> and I'm curious what you think the 25-year-old Catherine, what sort of advice, what sort of life advice she might have for the Catherine of today. Well, you know, 25-year-old Catherine was right at the beginning of her writing journey. In fact, I had just left a job that had left me stressed and ill. I'd already had that insight. I didn't learn very much for the future, but there you go. And I had decided that I wanted to become a writer. And I think what engaging with her could do for me now is to take me back into the kind of raw heat of wanting that I felt then you know like writing has become more complicated for me now it's how I make my money it's how I go out into the world it's very absolute to me and it can sometimes feel like a massive hassle and I would love 25 year old Catherine sometimes to sit down with me and tell me how much I wanted this when I was her age and how ambitious I was actually and how much I yearned after being right where I am now. And I think I'd sometimes feel better about those days when I'm wrestling with my new manuscript. <laughs> mm -hmm. Catherine, where could people learn more about you and your book? Oh, sure. I have a website, which is catherine-may.com. Or you can find me on Twitter. I have one of those Twitter handles that sounds really weird when you say it, but it looks fine written down. It's underscore Catherine underscore May underscore. Makes sense visually. And on Instagram, I'm Catherine May underscore. Fantastic. Catherine, thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much. Wow. I have to say I took away so much out of hearing her speak not only about her life experiences, but also about what she wrote in the book. I think, you know, the one thing that's just really top of mind is that once you start admitting you can't do it all and you start figuring out what are the priorities in life, you can become a much happier and centered person. Yeah. So there's a lot of great wisdom in what she shared. And then also just like the affirmation of like, you don't have to figure it all out. You don't have to be everything for yourself and for the world. And taking a break, not having it figured out, not knowing what's next, I think is really an important takeaway for me. Yeah, I think, you know, you just said the word break. And one of the things that she said was breaking your life into moments versus looking at it as a whole piece. And she kind of mentioned like building blocks. And I think that's so important to remember as I think we get so consumed about how we have to look at the big picture. But in reality, maybe we should be looking at things piece by piece to make sure that you're moving at a pace that is sustainable or that you're happy with or analyzing certain aspects of your life that 
are much easier than looking at the whole picture, right? You break it down and it's, I think it's important to remember that whether it's job, career, family, life in general, anything. I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to look at it all and to do it all when in reality, we need to take a step back and just kind of build upon what we have. Yeah, I was really struck by how the theme of self-regulation showed up so many different times in the conversation. Because when I was reading the book, I was really struck by how these moments of wintering, they seem forced upon us, you know, and it just seems like if you live your life where you're waiting for this thing to be forced upon you, you're just going to be in this constant cycle of crisis. You know, it's like not doing routine maintenance on your car, just waiting for it to break down. That's not the way to manage a car. <laughs> and so this notion of self-regulation and figuring out how to listen to your inner voice and pay attention to it, which was another interesting theme she brought up. She knew as a 25-year-old that she wanted to be a writer. She knew that these jobs were toxic. You know, she mentioned multiple times her inner voice telling her that this was not the thing to do, and yet she persevered. She, like all of us, I think, fell victim to social pressure. Mm -hmm. And by withdrawing and wintering, you're able to kind of quiet that social pressure voice and hear your own inner voice, which is probably the more truthful voice to follow. So there's something about you know, self-regulation involves being able to listen to what your body and what your own mind and spirit are asking of you. She, like many people, have found that moment of slowing down through meditation, through connections with nature. You know, for me, certainly the pandemic, but other episodes of my life too, maybe the whole lesson of wintering is that, you know, if you don't find a way to slow down yourself, it's going to be forced upon you. Like the system will self-correct and it's whether or not you want to get ahead of that or not. And I don't think any of us want to live our life careening from one crisis to the next. That doesn't seem productive to say the least. I like what she had to say about sinking into your passions or sinking into things that just make you feel good. That's something that, especially during the pandemic, I started to pay attention to more. And I don't know if it's the pandemic or being middle-aged or what it is, but my craving for a thing that I want to do, like let's make some good popcorn and sit down and watch a movie and I'm not going to get anything done and I'm going to kind of stop work productivity early on the Friday and sit with my family. It just feels so good. It feels nourishing. Just giving myself permission to do that or thinking about recognizing when am I happy? When do I feel fulfilled or satisfied? And how might I do more of that as a way to recharge, as a way to discover the unknown of what might be another thing that I do? In Catherine's case, it is she slowed down and she ended up writing a really amazing book. That feels like a really important practice to cultivate. Yeah, I also was struck by the, when she talked about leaving the job to write, she talked a lot about the economic anxiety and how this wasn't really a path she could recommend to other people because of the economic uncertainty. You know, I did feel that tension that I think all of us have between being economic actors and the modern economy forcing us to behave in a certain way versus being human. What was really inspiring for me about her book was it sort of gave me permission to reclaim my humanity and say, I'm not merely an economic actor. My value in the world is not one purely of being a producer or a consumer. I can be human. And in fact, my humanness, my humanity is going to force itself upon me whether I want it to or not. 
And the question is, is that going to be through crisis or through my own choices? Yeah, you have to recondition yourself to think that it's okay to be human and to not go 100 miles an hour all of the time or do everything that's expected for you or what is expected of you, I would say. And just, yeah, be yourself. Find what happiness really means and be okay with embracing the parts of your life that might not be so happy. You know, she said something that really resonated was like, stop running away from being sad or you're going to constantly feel hunted. Mm-hmm. And again, it's like conditioning yourself to be okay with having all of those emotions and those feelings. And sometimes it might be sad. Sometimes it might be overwhelmed or lonely or happy, right? But we don't ever give ourselves real permission to be in those moments. Yeah. I think the thing that can be a bit tricky with that is that sometimes the busyness is like a high. It feels good like to have a bit of stress and overcoming it. It is its own, you know, crisis and triumph and there's adrenaline and satisfaction in that that for myself I kind of crave that. I want more of that. But there's a point at which the balance gets thrown off where I have so much of that that it's what Catherine said. It's it's very short-term. It's a short-term high. It's not a lasting satiation or satisfaction mm-hmm. that can get into a really negative, constant, high-burn cycle that's ultimately not healthy and not sustainable. Exactly. Well, it's a great book. I know all three of us greatly enjoyed it, so I hope our listeners check out Wintering. I think there's a lot to be taken away there. And of course, it's just a joy to read. Yeah. It is just, yeah, the prose is magnificent. It's just a joy to read. Reconsidering is created by Aaron Walter, Bob Baxley, and me, Meredith Black, with editing help from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kima Maraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to catch future episodes and discover the treasures of the Reconsidering Library. To support the show, we'd be ever so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Your review will help others discover the show. And life, like the seasons, is ever-changing, but satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in. Until next time.